The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, good morning, guys. How are you doing today? Good. Good. <laughs> hey, uh, before we get started here, I, I thought, man, it would be really good to, uh, to take a look at something. Since we've been meditating throughout the week in our, our 40-day journey on the core values of, of heritage, the, the core value for this week is uh, gospel centrality. And when we say that, you know, sometimes people don't, don't really understand, like, what is behind that? What, what is the deal with that? So if you would, just grab your Bibles real quickly. We're, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here. But I want you to see something here from Luke chapter 24. Go ahead and open up to Luke 24, and we're going to pick it up in the 25th verse. While you're looking that up, uh, I'll just give you a little context. Here in this passage, it's after the resurrection. There's two disciples, Cleopas and, uh, Cleopas and another guy who is, who's unnamed here. Um, and they are on their, on their way to a town called Emmaus. And they've heard reports from the women that, that the tomb is, has been found empty. But they're not quite sure what to do with that. They don't have a good category for a risen Savior. That's not even on their, their radar. They're just kind of wondering, like, what, what does all this mean? What's going on here? And while they're walking on the road, Jesus himself shows up and starts walking with them. But they don't, they don't recognize him. We're not quite sure why. But for whatever reason, they don't realize who it is that's walking with them. And in verse 25... Uh, the, the, the verses leading up to that, the, there's this moment where they, they're like, hey, don't, don't you understand what's happened in Jerusalem? He's like, why do you guys look so sad? And they said, are you, are you the only one who doesn't understand what's happened here? This, this whole thing about Jesus and how he was murdered in, in Jerusalem. And like, don't, don't you know what's going on? And Jesus responds to them and he says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scripture, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to this village to where they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went to stay with them. And when he was at the table, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and then he vanished out of sight. Now notice their response here. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. Man, if there's any one lesson that I could sit in on, sort of fly on the wall to a conversation, it would be this one right here. As Jesus begins explaining to these disciples how the entirety of, of what God has revealed in scripture is really about him, his purpose, what he came to do, and what has been accomplished through the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and soon return of Jesus. That is the gospel message. I, 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 I just wonder, like, what, what did he say? What passages did he go to? 
Did he talk about the lamb that was slain and whose skins were used to cover Adam and Eve's sin and how that would, that would become a picture of what he would do in covering our sin? Did he, did he talk about that moment where Abraham takes Isaac up Mount Moriah and offers up his son and God says, no, I'm going to provide a lamb for you. Did, did, did he talk about how he's the Passover? Or, or, or that, that he would walk through the Red Sea for us, that he would cross from, from death to life for us and lead the way for us? Did he talk about he's the greater than Joshua? Or how he's the greater high priest or the better sacrificer? Did, did, he, did he describe to them how he's the better judge or the better king? Did he open up Psalm 22 to them? Where it says that they pierced my hands and my feet. Did he talk about how the prophets longed to see his day? That all their hopes were in that place? Or, or, or the fact that he would be the one who would enable us to have a new heart? Did he, did he talk about the fact that he was, he's the child born of a virgin? Did he mention all of these things? You see, there's, there's just hundreds and hundreds of places throughout the entirety of Scripture where it's obvious that the entire message is about Jesus. You have 40-some-odd books in the Bible. Or, excuse me, 60-some-odd books. 66? 66 books, thank you. <laughs> I'm a pastor, I'm supposed to these things. 66 books in the Bible, 40 some odd authors, right? Covering about 2,500 years of history, 3,500 years, somewhere around there. Written in different languages, on different continents, in different times. One message, the gospel. It's all about what God is doing through his son and the redemption of mankind. And that is worthy of our consideration. So week after week, day after day, we're going to be talking about the gospel all the time around here. It is a core value to heritage because we realize that it is the only point. It is the supreme ethic that helps us to see where we fit in the story of God. Matter of fact, I love the fact that, that history breaks down as his story. Everything that has happened, everything that will happen is God's story. It is the revealing of his goodness to you and to me. Amen? All right, so that's why we are gospel-centered. So today, as we are opening up the book of Genesis, you are going to be listening for it. Is Jeremy, does he really believe that? I mean, is that true? Are we going to talk about the gospel here in, in the book of Genesis? Is that going to come up? You should be expecting that that will happen time after time day after day, here in the sanctuary as we open up the scriptures with one another. Amen? Okay, so flip on over to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. Now, up till now, we have been sorting through the opening chapter of the Bible and looking at the creation narrative. And Pastor Paul shared with us last week how it is uh, there's a pattern of, of forming and filling that is happening here in the creation story. And, and that it gives us some clues as to the heart of, 
uh, of God, of the mind of God in creation. There seems to be implied in the text the idea that God created a space and then that space has an intention. It's to be filled with life. He forms and then he fills. God created a space for life to dwell because he intended to fill that lifeless space with the living. And Pastor Paul showed us how how each of the days correspond with God forming the space and then filling the space with life the next. So the, the days of creation kind of go like this. On day one, light is created and day and night are defined. But then if you skip ahead to day four, that's where... The sun, the moon, the stars are made to rule the day and the night. In day two, you have the waters being firmed and then a separation and and, and waters above, waters below, the sea and the the land is, is becoming defined. And in day five, you have waters filling or the waters being filled with fish and all kinds of creatures and the air being filled with birds On day three, dry land appears and plants are formed. And then in day six, the dry land is filled with the animals and with man and the plants are given for food. So we have forming and filling. And so now today, though, we're going to zoom in and look at the sixth day. And this day brings about the creation of the land inhabitants. This this brings about that, that moment where God begins to fill the land, both animals and humans. And what we'll see here is that the Bible is elevating mankind in the creation story to a, a, a unique status. And there seems to be something unique and special about humanity and about their destiny. And we'll, we'll pick up on some of those clues as we work our way through the text. And th- this pattern, um, and as is the pattern, excuse me, in all the Bible, at the heart of this really is the gospel. So we'll get back to that. But there's three questions I want to I be able to put out there. I plan to answer these questions at the end of our time. We're going to work our way through the text. But I want you to have these questions in the back of your mind because you're going to start to fill in some of the pieces as we work our way through this. The qu- three questions I hope to answer is, first of all, what does our text reveal about God? What is God teaching us about himself? What does the text reveal about God? What does our text reveal about man, about us, about humans? As we work our way through the text, you're going to begin to see some of those pieces. And then thirdly, our application, why why does this matter? Why do we care about this? So let's start by reading the text that we'll be working through. And then we'll begin kind of chewing our way through it more meticulously. Beginning in verse 24 of chapter 1. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, 
And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Would you pray with me? Father, as we open up, this text, we pray that your Holy Spirit would, would begin forming in us an understanding of how it is that you see the world. Would you shape our hearts, Lord, and cause our understanding of the world around us to correspond with reality, with the way things truly are. Shape our hearts for your glory. Give us wisdom and understanding and cause us to grow and to become more like your son. Use your word today. Use this text for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we begin working our way through the text here, what what we see first is the creation of animals on the sixth day. Uh... Animals are created and proliferate according to their kind. This means that the species is populated in the reproductive cycle in such a way that it produces the same kind of species. Dogs produce produce different types of dogs, but they don't produce penguins, right? They, They produce according to their kind. There's a coding that is written in from the very foundation, sewn into the DNA of everything that lives, a law by which it should proliferate. And God is the author of that coding. (laughs) He's the one who thought that up and brought that into existence. This coating that's woven into the fabric of everything that lives functions according to the command of God. It continues to write more DNA and build more cells exactly to the specifications of what God has chosen. They proliferate according to their kind. And and, and I I want you to notice something here. Notice in verse 24, it says, And and God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, Uh, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. This is a repeated theme that comes up again and again. But I also want you to notice it says living creatures. The the word there in the Hebrew is an interesting word. It's actually nefesh. That's the the Hebrew word. And it comes from the idea of breathing. To breathe air. So these creatures are, they become living creatures by the fact that they take in breath from the air. The word nefesh is, is used to talk about the life of these creatures, and it's used over 750, it's used 753 times in the Bible in 683 verses. But out of those 753 times, 475 times it's translated soul. And, and what you'll notice here is that the animals 
have their own distinct personalities. They have their own instincts. They have their own unique uh, breeding habits for the preservation of the species. And, and, and that God has designed all of this from the beginning. Now, now what's interesting is that it stands in contrast w- with what God does in creating mankind. Because while animals become a nefesh, a living creature or a living soul, by breathing the air, do you remember how it is that Adam comes alive? Adam is formed out of the dust of the ground in Genesis chapter 2, we're told. And then what animates him? What gives him life? Not the air that he breathes, although bodily he will breathe air. But the very first thing that gives him life is not the air around him, but it is in fact the breath of God. He becomes a living soul because he is animated by God himself. God imparts something of himself into Adam, as we'll see later. And as the story unfolds. But, but here is kind of a, an important framework for us to begin to think through. And, and that is this. You have sort of lower creation, the animal world. And then God steps up sort of a, a, a higher level of creation in, in creating mankind. That, that they will receive his breath and bear his image as will unfold here. But the animals, sort of lower creation, mankind here, and then you have spiritual beings who are purely spiritual, sort of next level in, in the angelic realm, and then you got, have God who is infinite. And, and you see that there's this hierarchy, this, there's this order that is a part of God's created world. Now, a fun side note, animals become kind of living souls. And this is a question that comes up with kids a lot of times. Or especially after, you know, a pet dies. Uh, so animals are living souls. They have their own personalities and everything else. But will, will there be animals in heaven? And the question itself demonstrates that often we don't have a, a, a very robust eschatology or, or understanding of the end times. Now, we don't have all the pieces in the scriptures, but we have enough to understand what God's plan is for eternity. In, in the words of Randy Alcorn, the famous author and pastor, he says that heaven is not our home. Heaven is not our home. Heaven is a sort of intermediary place for what is coming, the new heavens and the new earth that are at the end of time. And on the new heavens and and the new earth, the prophets had a lot of things to say. Isaiah, for example, in Isaiah chapter 11, tells us that the wolf will lie down with the lamb and that the lion will eat grass like an ox, that a child will be able to play over the hole in the ground that is the home of the, the poisonous adder without any fear. It's, a, it's going to be a, a, a time of unparalleled peace, but, but it talks about these creatures, these animals that live in the new heavens and the new earth. Now it's interesting as well that Romans chapter 8 tells us that all of creation is longing for that final moment where Jesus comes in the second coming and finally sets everything right. Why? Because the creation is longing for and groaning, hoping that the 
The sons of God will be revealed that, that the redemp final redemption will take place so that they can be swept up in this new creation, the new heavens and the new earth as well. All of creation is longing for that. It's built into them. It's going to be more like the Garden of Eden, a, a setting of supernatural peace. Now, this is sort of anecdotal, but you, you guys remember, when Jesus does come back in the second coming, what's he riding? A white horse. So for all the 12-year-old girls who draw horses, I've got good news for you. In the end, animals will still be there. God cares for his creation. Matter of fact, our, our, our set of verses here conclude in the middle of the day, instead of at the end of the day, in the middle of the day and before God makes mankind, he looks over all the animals that he's made and he says, it is good. <laughs> oh, man, this, is, this is good. Look at that. Look at the, the duck-billed platypus. I just, I had leftover parts and I just, you know, I just glued them all together and look right here. I just, this is so cool. Look at them. God loves his creation. He has a heart for what he has made. He loves his creation effective, affectionately. He's pleased with it. He gives the animals distinct personalities and instincts and even thinks ahead to a glorious time when even the animals will share in the redemption state of the world. And he, he looks down on everything he's made. With all of that in mind, with all of that in front of him, he says, oh, this is good. The, the word good in Hebrew is tov, tov. It's the same phrase that is used to describe the way that Eve assessed the fruit. She, she looked at the fruit in the Garden of Eden and said, oh, it, it's good for food. It's tov. It's the same, way, the same word that is used by God when he talks about after the fall. It says, now mankind will know good, tov, and evil, ra. He's going to know what is good and what is corrupt. He's going to have this living in him now. This distinction. But when God looks at his created world and the animals that he's made, he says, oh, these are, these are good. Now, recently, my son showed me a, it was a TikTok video. I don't know if you guys have kids that are on TikTok, but he shows me this TikTok video. And it's an excerpt from a, uh, a, a documentary on octopuses. And he, he's showing me how octopi... Uh, can camouflage themselves with just a thought. Like they, they can change the color of their skin. I don't know if you guys knew this, but they, they, there's some types that can change the color of their skin. And they, and they also will swim in a pattern so they look like other creatures. So they look like one of those little flat fish that hides it, burrows down into the sand. They can swim in such a way that they look like a, a lionfish. And then they change their, their, their arms to like black and white stripes so they look like a predatory fish. I mean, it's incredible. And, and they do this like, boom. They're like, I would like to look like that. Ta-da! I do. That's incredible. I mean, how, you know how long the military has wanted to do something like that? 
Like all the billions of dollars that have been spent on trying to find some sort of cloaking technology that can help people do that? God says, oh yeah, that's easy. Octopus, B. It's his idea. He came up with that. And it's been hidden down in the bottom of the ocean. We, have, we only get to see it now because we've got scuba divers and, you know, submarines and whatever else. But they, it's just been down there waiting to be discovered. The glory and magnificence of how great our God is. He delights it. Now, now, now think about this. We, we see these documentaries. We go, whoa, that's amazing. We find joy in it, delight in the discovery and yet God was like, yeah, that, that's my creativity. That documentary, I actually came up with the concept. <laughs> that, that came from my creative genius. And I, I just love watching you discover these things as you delve into science, as you delve into the arts. I, I love watching you pay attention to my creative genius and see the glory and the magnitude of who I am. I, I, I delight in that. Isn't it good? Isn't it good? I can't help but think about my own encounter this last fall with some monster bull elk over in eastern Oregon. And on the one hand, you know, you, you feel like there's a certain sort of, when you go hunting, like there, there's a certain sort of, uh, you know, manliness that you feel when you have like a knife and a bow and arrow and you just like paint it in camo. When you go out in the woods, you're like, I'm here to kill something, right? And then I, I see this elk and there's some reprod in front of me. I could see the legs moving, right? And there's two bull elk on the other side of this reprod, maybe only 15, 20 yards away from me. And I can't get a shot through the trees, but underneath I can see the feet moving, and over the top of the trees I can see the horns sort of passing by as they're walking near me. And all of a sudden, my bow and arrow felt really small. I found myself in, in front of this creature going, oh my goodness, look, at, I hope this thing works. I hope this does the trick. It's incredible. You say, but Jeremy, okay, I understand. In awe of creation, discovering the beauty of it, being in awe of how amazing and how big it is, and like, like those two ladies that almost got swallowed by the giant whale off the coast of California. You guys remember seeing that video? I mean, it's just nuts how big these critters are running around in the ocean. And you, you find yourself in awe of it, but, but Jeremy, doesn't that mean then that we should have a sort of awe of creation that keeps us from killing it, hunting it? What about eating meat? Is that a moral thing to do? Well, what you find is actually later in the scriptures, God is the first person to take the life of an animal. Remember, he is the one who slays a lamb in the garden and uses the skins to cover Adam and Eve. He also gives a command to Noah in Genesis chapter 9, verse 3, commanding him to eat meat. You'll remember the first murder that happens in the Bible happens over jealousy because a, a, a sacrifice is required to be given to the Lord. One is the fruit of the ground and the other is an animal. And only one is accepted by the Lord. He accepts 
the death of that lamb that Abel offered. And then he institutes, of course, the sacrificial system and the eating of that. And on and on it goes, all the way to, into the New Testament with, with the book of Acts. And Peter is commanded, one of my favorite verses, it's a life verse for me, rise, Pete, kill, and eat. I, I feel like that's one of those, those mantras that, that is a part of you know, my discipleship in the Lord. But in all seriousness, it, it seems to be that God is introducing an idea for us that is very important. In order for me to live, something else must die. And, and every meal is this proclamation and, is that in order for me to have life, something else must die. When we bow our heads to give thanks for the food that God has given to us, we are, in fact, reenacting in that very moment the reality that in order for us to live, something else must die. It's an eternal proclamation. Now, this is incredible. So, does that mean we just aimlessly go killing creatures? I mean, is that, is that how that's supposed to work? No, we're supposed to be stewards of the earth. In the same way that God is a steward of the, of the earth. He's made us to bear his image and not be abusers of his creation. Creation is to be stewarded for God, but, but not worshipped as though it were God. Now, now here's the beauty of this. What that means is that anytime you mow your grass, anytime you, you're in the parking lot and you pick up a piece of garbage that somebody just carelessly threw on the ground, Every time you load your bird feeder or do any good in the created world, you're actually partnering with God in the stewardship of his world. It's a really incredible thing that those small little acts are acts of worship and obedience and partnership with God in the stewardship of the world. When you feed your dog and pet your cat, you're actually functioning the way that God has created you to function. When we care for God's world, we reveal his heart for his creation. And so we see here in this, this short little passage here, the creation of these animals, and packed into that is God's affectionate love for these creatures. And, and along with that is an understanding for us where we fit in in that. Because in the middle of the day, he looks over the animals and says, it's good. Okay, chapter, close, new chapter. In verse 26, he, he sort of changes gears. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Now on the same day that God made the animals, he's going to make man. But, but let, let's take notice of the distinct ways in which he does this. Remember, there, there, there's nothing that is preventing God from making man in the same way that he made all of the other creatures. He could just speak and man becomes a living thing. But, he, but he's He's illustrating for us something. He's, he's, he's drawing something out in order that we might see more clearly where we fit in his world. He specifically demonstrates the uniqueness of man in the creation story. Now this is something that we're going to explore in greater detail as we step into chapter 2. 
But here, we're going to get a little bit more of the backstory as to the conversation God has in making man in the first place. After creating the animals, all of a sudden, you, you, you're invited into this private conversation with God. Where all of a sudden, from out of nowhere, he, he, things have seemed semi-singular all the way along in the creation story. And now all of a sudden he says, let us make man in our image. Notice the way the text shifts to a plural conversation. Now there's some level of mystery around this portion of scripture because of how suddenly there appears to be a plurality. And there's several solutions as to why. Some scholars refer to this use of the plural language as the majestic we, or the royal we, or the majestic plural. And it's the use of a plural pronoun to refer to a single person who is a monarch. So, you know, like instead of talking about the queen, you'd you'd say, you know, we this majestic sort of we in a a plural format as a way of honoring her uh, status. Others, however, see a historical understanding of something called the divine council that is referred to in the Psalms and in Deuteronomy. And the divine council seems to be this sort of council that God assembles of his created spiritual beings, these principalities and powers who have spiritual authority, And they've been given that authority by God to sort of spiritually rule over the earth. Still others see the Trinity in conversation within this passage. So they would say this is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit speaking. And and when when God says, let us make man in our image, he's saying that mankind is, is, is sharing in, reflecting the trinity now regardless of how you view the use of the plural language here the point is clear god desires to share something of himself and of his rule with the created world he seems to want there to be something that he can show of himself through the beings that he is about to make he's he's saying Let us make man in our image. I want to demonstrate something of myself through the next thing that I'm about to make, mankind. And so, let us, he says. Then we have the creation story, make man. Now, from chapter 2, we find out that Adam is formed from the dust of the ground. The name Adam actually is a descriptor. It's... The, the name in Hebrew means red like clay because he was made from the dust of the earth. And now this is something that the original audience, the, the Hebrew children who are, who are traveling with Moses on the way to the promised land, that they would understand really very clearly because remember, what was it that they were doing in the work of Egypt? Making bricks, right? Forming bricks out of the clay. They would be very familiar with this idea of, of forming something out of clay, but then giving life to it is a whole different thing. Adam is from the earth, but then he's infused with something from God, the breath of God, in order to become a living soul. 
We find this out in Genesis 2-7. We learn that God made Adam from the dust of the earth and then took his own breath to give Adam life. And Adam also becomes a living the flesh just like the animals. However, unlike the animals that draw air for life, Adam's first breath comes from God. Animals are spoken into existence by God's divine power, but Adam draws his life from the breath of God and God imparts something of himself into the life of Adam. And Adam then is both terrestrial and spiritual, united in one being. He's terrestrial from the earth and he's spiritual from God. This is an important thing because this sets up what we will be celebrating here in about 25 days. The incarnation. The Son of God who is made man. Who is incarnated in the person of Jesus. So God says, let us Make man terrestrial and spiritual. And then this third part, in our image and after our likeness. In our image and after our likeness. And then I'm going to share my dominion. Now, the idea of carrying the image and likeness of God. The word image here is selim. In the Hebrew, T-S-E-L-E-M, selim. The word has its origin in the root word meaning shade or shadow. So when light is casting a shadow on something, you get the image of what is there being cast onto the ground. It's used figuratively elsewhere to denote an image like an idol. So in Numbers chapter 33, verse 52 you have graven images. There's a great story. Actually, I've been thinking a lot about how do I illustrate this point for, for the body here at Heritage. So in, in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 11, there's this fantastic story how the Ark of the Covenant has been stolen by the Philistines. And they, they take the Ark of the Covenant, they put it in their own temple, the temple to Dagon, their god. And, and when they do that, the... They come in in the morning, and Dagon has fallen over on his face before the ark. So they go, oh, you know, our God fell down. So they take him, and they put him back up. And they're like, don't fall down, God. And the next morning they come in, and he's fallen down, and now his arms and his head fell off, and just his torso is sitting there. And they're like, oh, our God's broke. <laughs> Get the super glue, right? And so they have to fix him and put him back together. And then they pull the Ark of the Covenant out. They're like, hey, this is some bad mojo here. And, and they, they keep hanging on to it. They hang on to the Ark of the Covenant for about seven months. But finally, what, what God does to change their minds, to give the Ark of the Covenant back to the people of Israel, is he strikes them with what the King James refers to as emeralds. Literally, hemorrhoids. God is saying to the Philistines, you guys are kind of a pain in the butt. <laughs> right? Like, I, I, just want, I want you to know what I think about you. <laughs> right? You guys are a, kind of a pain. Now, these guys don't know what to do with this, the Philistines. And so they, they, they get their, their diviners together and then they say, well, how do we 
get this thing back to the children of Israel. And so they come up with this idea of, of getting the, these uh, mother cows and tying them to a cart. And then they, they make golden selims, images of their emeralds. And they put them in a little box. They, literally, golden statues, images, selims of their hemorrhoids. Now, I don't know who posed for that. I'm not quite sure how that worked. You know, the, the sculptor is doing the sculpting and somebody else is, you know, very uncomfortable in the moment. Uh, but, but they make some golden emeralds and they put them in a box and they, you know, put them next to the cart on the Ark of the Covenant and ship them back to Israel. And so the Israelites get, the, you get there and they, they get this box full of golden emeralds and they get like, what is this? <laughs> you know, there's some golden mice in there too. And they're like, man, these Philistines, I don't, I don't know what's going on with them over there. But, but God is making the Philistines to know that uh, he's not pleased with them in that moment. This idea of image comes up again later on in the book of Daniel. Remember the, the golden image uh, that, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar makes. Now, I thought about, you know, what what would be the best way to illustrate this for our people? And so, since Mitch is the head of uh, worship arts here, I brought some clay on stage. While I'm preaching, I'm going to have Mitch come up and and sculpt some golden emeralds for us. And and, and I think it'll be a huge blessing to the whole church. It'll really bring to life this, this moment. Just kidding. Uh, But here here is is, is kind of the main deal. A selim an image, is used to make visible what is invisible. It represents the reality. It casts a shadow. That's the idea. Okay, so then, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Mankind is meant to cast a shadow, to make visible what is invisible, about God. That's part of our created purpose. We're supposed to demonstrate his likeness by our existence. Now I have to give credit here to Mike Robinson. It's nice when you have an elder who is a resident theologian. He's the President of Pacific Bible College, very smart guy, and he's been working with our elders on some doctrinal clarity. And we've had some really great studies, but we, we went through this passage on, uh, or through this teaching on what it means to be an image bearer. This is called the doctrine of Imago Dei. Imago Dei is a Latin term. It just means image of God. And, he, and he, he asks the question, you know, like, okay, so what does it mean that we bear God's image? What, what, what does that actually give to us? What, what's being transferred there? And he, he, he said there's basically four views. The first one is called the substantive view, the substantive view, or sometimes it's called the structural view. And, and what it means is that it, it, it finds that we bear the image of God in the substance of what we are or, or the qualities that we possess or carry. So capacity for love, intelligence, things like that, right? That the, the substance that makes us up, that that's what mirrors or images God. Others, though, have 
what they call the relational view. And this sees God's image as expressed in our relationship to God and others. So we, we bear God's image in the way that we love others and love God. And that, that's how God is being revealed through humanity. The third view is called the functional view. So we have the substantive view, the relational view, and the third one is called the functional view. And this sees God's image as being expressed in what man does through carrying out God's rule and dominion in the earth and, and man's obedience to God. That that's how we bear God's image. Now, there, there's some built-in weaknesses with each of those perspectives, but I'd like to sum them up with just kind of one idea. What do we do with humans who maybe don't have the capacity for relationship? What do we do with, with humans that aren't producing a whole lot to spread out God's rule and dominion in the earth? What do we do with, with humans who, who maybe don't possess certain innate qualities like intelligence or capacity for love? Because they're yet unborn? Or because of some severe illness or accident? Or because of their age and they're elderly? And they're no longer functioning in the same capacity or way that they did. But what happens then? Do, do they still have the ability to bear God's image? And this leads to the fourth perspective, the fourth view. And this is the one I, I really like. It's what's called the holistic view. This is a view that sees mankind bearing the image of God and, and expressing that image through the whole of the person. It is neither, uh, it's not either their functional ability or their relational ability or the qualities that they, they possess. Rather, it's, it's all of these and more. It's the whole of the person that expresses what God is like. Their very existence expresses his image. This is important for reasons that we'll get to as we wrap things up. But I want to I just give you a little side note here that I think is worth thinking about. To bear God's image is both a gift and it is a goal. It's a gift in that you were born with it. It, it, It's something that is innate to your nature. You, by your very existence, demonstrate and represent the wisdom of God, the nature of God, the character of God by by your existence. And this isn't something that's taken away because of the fall. It's something that is talked about again and again. In in, uh, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, one of the foundational reasons that murder is not allowed as God is talking to Noah is that because mankind's blood should not be shed because he was made in the image of God. Later on, the book of James goes on to talk about how we, we, we can't, on the one hand, bless God with our mouths and give him worship and then curse our neighbor who's made in the image of God. So even how we use our words in relationship to talking about other people matters to God. He says it's inconsistent. A, a, a freshwater spring cannot produce also salt water. So too, a mouth that lifts up praises to God cannot curse the ones who are made in his image. It's inconsistent. It's not right. So it's a gift that mankind already has by nature of the fact 
that they exist. But it's also a goal. A fallen person who is separated from God and does not know God still bears the image of God. But a person who is saved, who has come to know God, is also growing in Christ-likeness. They start this journey of beginning to be shaped and molded to become more like Jesus. They're being conformed to his image, which means we are increasing in our capacity to bear his image well, to not mar it. And it's something that will be fully realized at our glorification, our resurrection from the dead. And so mankind is created to be an image bearer. And then God shares his authority. He says, let them have dominion. Let them rule. Part of what it means to bear God's image and fulfill his purpose is to rule over the earth. And we'll we'll get into that more next week as Paul talks to us about the cultural mandate, or what is often referred to as the cultural mandate. But suffice it to say, caring for and bringing order to the world is a part of how we are designed to work by instinct. It's a part of how God has made us. And and I want you to notice also, let's not skip this last little part so god verse 27 created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them this is important notice that god again he has options here right he doesn't have to make adam as one human and then separate from Adam, Eve. He doesn't have to do that. He could make Adam and make Eve and breathe life into both of them. Like he could have Eve grow from a tree. Like he could do whatever he wants, right? He's not out of options, but he's demonstrating something for us. He starts mankind as a unity, as a, as a way of complementing each other, working together in partnership with equality. There's something that God is illustrating for our benefit by by waiting to separate Eve from Adam. He's emphasizing the complementarian value of the sexes. That male and female giftings and abilities accentuate different aspects of God's divine nature. Both in the nurturing and in the protecting. We see Different aspects of who God is being accentuated through distinct maleness and distinct femaleness. It's by design. God is imaged more fully and completely then by the unity of the sexes. And in marriage, we're told that the two become what? One. Adam starts as one, becomes two, gets married, is two, becomes one. See how that works? A unity that is there. God's original design favors unity and equality rather than a sort of hierarchical power struggle. It doesn't do away with the differences in responsibility. Rather, it highlights, as 1 Peter says, that we are co-heirs with Christ, laboring together for the kingdom. And that happens best when we're a partnership. Okay, so we, we asked three questions at the beginning. What does this text reveal about God? What does it reveal about us? And why does it matter? So l- let's go through those. What does it reveal about God? First of all, the special love that he has for man. How does man exist? 
God shared his breath. He shared his rule. And eventually he'll share his son. Oh, man. God has a unique love for man. It's not like the love that he has for angels or for the critters that are on the earth. There's something special and unique that God has for mankind. Second thing it reveals about God, notice the desire that he has to share himself and his rule. Man is charged with sharing God's image and his rule. And in taking up this calling, man will... uh, Man will come to know the nature and character of God, not by just learning or observation, but by experiencing it. You see, you don't know the costliness of love, except when you have to give it. You don't know how deeply you can be wounded and have to extend mercy, how painful it is to give mercy to someone who maybe doesn't deserve it, until you have to walk in that. And in doing that, you are sharing in the sufferings of God himself. You're getting to know his heart. You're starting to understand the deep things of God as you walk in those things. In the exercise of these things, we are learning about what it costs God to love us and show mercy and grace to us. So notice his desire to share himself and his rule. Third thing that it reveals about God is his creative genius. Note the complexity of his creation. I mean, I remember back when uh, Apple Watches came out, right? And I was like, man, I got to have one of those. I grew up watching like Inspector Gadget and spy movies and stuff. I'm like, that would be so cool. I could like talk into my watch. I can like walkie-talkie. I can answer emails, texts. It keeps track of my heart rate. I don't know why, but it does. Tells me whether or not I slept good. I mean, it's incredible. More amazing though than the watch that's on my wrist is the wrist that's under my watch. Every cell containing the entire genetic coding for my entire body. That's incredible. Right inside of my chest beats a heart that miraculously creates its own energy and electricity to keep beating. And it does that for, you know, 80 years unless I keep eating bacon. Right? It's incredible. Notice God's creative genius. We wonder at the complexity of the Apple Watch, but oftentimes we we pass right over the complexity of the human body and don't even understand it. Notice his care. Not only his creative genius, but his care. Everything has what it needs for life. God is a conservationist who seeks for us to partner with him in managing the food and the world that he's provided. So we see his care. We see his power. What does it reveal about God? We see his power. He made everything that exists. How did he do it? He did it. He just did. He's like, bam, let it be. And bam, it was. Because that's how powerful God is. That's incredible. We see his power. We see his purpose. He intends to dwell among his people and share with his creation. Man's capacity To be both of the earth and of God is what enables the the incarnation to be a reality. 
God is thinking about Christmas even here at the beginning of creation. He's thinking about how he will redeem it before it even falls and laying the groundwork for that. So what does it reveal to us about us, about man? First of all, our unique origin. Our unique origin from God's breath and the dust of the earth. Our unique calling. We're not just animals. We're from the dust of the ground, but also from the breath of God. Our unique calling, we share image, we reflect who God is, and dominion. Our, our unique responsibility, number three, our unique origin, number one, unique calling, number two, number three, our unique responsibility. We are to glorify God and reflect his image. That's our calling in life. Number five, our unique, excuse me, Number four, our unique destiny. We're created to live with and share in the labor of God for all of eternity. This is going to go on forever and ever. New heavens, new earth, we're still partnering with God and bringing order to his world. Forever and ever, we're going to get to enjoy how God has created us and what he's created us for. Number five, our unique unity. We're created male and female from one man, by design, God demonstrates that our uni unity and our equality as co-laborers in Christ is important to him. It's male and female, not male versus female. And God loves that. He set it up that way. And number six, our unique value or dignity. Question, who did Jesus die for? Humans, those made in his image. Did he die for the angels? Nope. He died for the animals? Nope. He died for mankind. And the angels and the animals will participate in the joy of redemption, but God uses humanity as the vehicle for redemption. That's incredible. What a privilege. Okay, so why does it matter? Why do we care? A few things I want you to take note of. It matters because this is what helps us to understand why we care for creation. This is why we want to steward God's world, not destroy it. Taking seriously the fact that we're made in his image means that we're created to care for his creation, not decimate it, not destroy it. Why does it matter? Well, as those made in the image of God, we care about life. This is why we, we care about the unborn, the disabled, the handicapped, the elderly, because built into all of those people, even in their disability, is the image of God that should not be destroyed. And we ascribe value to that in the same way that God does. That's why murder is always wrong in the womb and out of it. It's interesting, there is a, right now, a, a kind of a current debate that's going on. And th those who are outside of Christianity see Christians as hypocrites in this whole pandemic thing, right? Because of the, the, the resistance to wearing masks. And, that, that, and they say, well, how can you say you, you love life on this side and then on the other say, side not want to protect it? Like you only love it in the womb, but you don't love it after the womb? And there's this, this, this tension. I think that's something that we have to think about, whether or not we're consistent in our values. We care about life. And we care about the issues of equality 
of race, of sexes, and of social classes. We cannot agree with God's word and not care about those created in his image. We can't say, we're all made in the image of God, and then say, but you are a little bit less valuable because you weren't born in this country or because you don't share the same skin tone or because you're not the same sex as me. We can't do that. It's inconsistent. It doesn't make sense. This is why we care about those things. Lastly, for application, I think this is important for us to take note of. This also changes the way we relate to others. When we see the image of God in others, we're meant to honor it. And not only that, but when we see that we are made to bear the image of God, that means that I'm supposed to reflect who God is in some way. I'm revealing something about God in the way that I interact with my fellow man. And there's a huge responsibility in that. How might that change our marriages? How might that change our parenting? How might that change our neighboring? If we went into our lives, in day-to-day life, understanding that we are meant to carry, reflect, image, sell them who God is in the way we love our spouse, in the way we love our kids, in the way we love our neighbor. How incredible that is. If our calling is to image God to the people in our lives, what are they learning through the way we currently behave towards them? On many levels, I think, through examination, there's space for repentance. And there's growing for us all to do. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for making us in your image. What an incredible privilege and what an awesome responsibility that is to carry that. Father, I, I don't even know that I can accurately define to the finest detail the amount of reverence that we should carry into that responsibility. That the world is getting a glimpse of who you are through the way that we live. God, let Christ be formed in us. Let your Son incarnate himself by the Holy Spirit through our lives. Conform us to his image. Grow our love, grow our capacity to care for our neighbors. Grow the depth of our understanding of your word. May we walk in this holy calling that we've received. You're our God. We're your people. Now because of your Christ, your Son, who is living in us, may we grow in our capacity to reflect who you are to the world around us. We ask this in the name and for the glory of Jesus. Amen.